All right. Good afternoon and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar and podcast series Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. Now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, let's start uh, with um, something that really has been getting a lot of news in Israel over the last few weeks, and uh, past a milestone, a very sad and depressing milestone. Um, this week, 100 Arabs and Druze, members of the Arab-speaking uh, community in Israel, 100 members were killed uh, in intra-Arab uh, squabbles, uh, clan fights, criminal activities, uh, mafia hits, etc., etc. In recent years, we've certainly seen um, a rise in the number of, um, uh, let's say, assassinations, murders, sometimes mistaken uh, killings. Um, and it's really become a major, major problem, something which really does unite the Jewish and Arab members of Knesset that needs to, it needs to be dealt with uh, because it's just getting worse. Each year, the numbers are getting higher and higher, and there doesn't seem to be a single day recently where someone uh, wasn't shot dead. There's a lot of uh, people debating what the reasons are, everything from uh, the, just the, the, the ease of uh, uh, weapons, illegal weapons in um, the Arab communities of either the Galil in the north or the Negev in the south. Um, and the fact that there's, you know, sort of uh, blood feuds, you know, uh, when a clan member does something to a, a member of another clan, you know, there can be a, uh, a revenge taken and then there can be a revenge taken on that and so forth. Some point to uh, the fact that during the 80s and 90s, when there were very significant Jewish mafias, either sort of Moroccan mafias, Russian mafias, a lot of the uh, so-called people in the field were Arabs that they used to do their dirty work. And just in recent years, they've just basically become more and more independent and understood the rules of the game. Um, so they've been acting more uh, independently and now have been running mafia type events in Arab uh, cities and towns, as I said, in the north and the south and there just doesn't seem to be a day that goes past recently where an Arab member, an Arab Israeli uh, hasn't been gunned down. I mean some of these are just, uh, we see videos of them you know from uh, close uh, circuit security TV and just very very sad watching these, these there's no other word for it, hits on uh, various members of uh, their own community. What we have also seen is sometimes uh, this criminalism, uh, criminal activity has also moved out to certain areas in the Negev, for example. Uh, there are certain towns and cities like Beersheba where there's just regular hits, there's protection. Uh, we, we saw a video yesterday of a young man, a young boy even, uh, who was working in a pizza uh, shop that apparently hadn't paid enough protection to an Arab mafia, and he was robbed at uh, gunpoint. Um, very traumatized by it. There are certain towns near Bedouin uh, uh, towns or villages where, you know, just shooting at each other sometimes just rebounds into their area. <clears throat> it happens also in the north today. Kibbutz was 
uh, hit, its agricultural produce was burnt to the ground again. Uh, there's discussions exactly why, whether there was, it was part of a protection uh, action uh, against a, a Jewish uh, kibbutz community. But the fact remains that there has to be something uh, done about it because they're in Israel for the first time, there's sort of no-go areas. You know, we talk uh, a lot uh, about no-go areas in certain parts of Europe, perhaps Sweden, France, Belgium, other places. And Israel's now got that. There are certain parts of the Negev where police just don't have the numbers to deal with the vast expanse of um, areas in which these criminal activities are taking place also in the north. Um, it is trying to be addressed. The government has uh, tried to up the budget, has tried to increase the number of uh, police and even army that will patrol these areas. There was just two battalions added uh, to the south uh, only today. Uh, but it's certainly becoming a major, major problem, especially for the communities down there. But most of all, the Arab, uh, the Arab Israelis, the peace-loving, uh, you know, uh, civilians who just want to go about their life. You know, we've seen doctors, lawyers gunned down. We've seen all sorts of people just part of this seemingly never-ending uh, cycle of violence in these cities. And the interesting thing here is you hear mayors in Arab towns you hear civilians who are just saying enough is enough. We want the Israeli uh, army to come in. We want the Shabak, which is the internal uh, intelligence uh, security apparatus, which doesn't have the best uh, reputation in the Arab uh, community. But they said enough is enough. So there is that um, going on. And that seems to be taking a lot of attention here because, you know, it's never reached these proportions. There has been a problem uh, for many years, especially in the Negev as I said, where there are areas which are just basically taken over. Um, but the fact that there, there seems to be so many murders uh, in the community and there seems to be so many illegal weapons is also something very problematic. How do you rein that in? How do you uh, collect the weapons? Um, uh, the Israeli government gave uh, an order uh, which allowed people to um, just basically go into an apartment without a, or a house without a warrant to search the premises to look for these illegal weapons. And obviously, as you can imagine, that caused a certain amount of consternation on the left. Um, but it is something that, you know, the, 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 the government, especially the internal security minister, is looking uh, for resources, is looking for tools to be able to stop this because it's a growing phenomenon. And if it just keeps on growing year on year, it's, it's really getting out of hand. Uh, so that's taken a lot of attention. Um, locally, uh, as, as I've said in recent weeks, the relationship between the coalition, the opposition is certainly heating up. And even within the coalition, within the opposition, let's start with the coalition. Uh, again, just over three weeks until the crucial budget votes, there seems to be a bit of a uh, disagreement, to say the least. Ram have threatened to leave the government if their funding um, and their budgetary demands are not met. Uh, that's, that's, again, you know, if you ask someone like uh, Finance Minister Victor Lehman, he said he expects or this saber-rattling, or this last-minute threats to happen. That's, that's par for the course for Israeli politics. Um, so we are going to hear more of that. More interestingly, within the right of the coalition, there seems to be a disagreement on what is considered a personal law uh, against the possibility of uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu returning as prime minister. Gidon Saar, who's the justice minister, has been floating a couple of uh, laws recently. A couple of weeks ago, it was to... Uh, ensure that there was uh, a maximum uh, term limits to a prime minister serving. In Israel, obviously, we don't have fixed 
terms, or at least we do have fixed terms, but no one ever, you know, goes to the end. But they, they were talking about eight years, uh, but that wouldn't be retroactive. So someone like, uh, you know, former Prime Minister Netanyahu was served 13 years recently. He would be able to start from uh, day one uh, if he was re-elected. But this week, uh, he floated a, a more interesting and certainly more controversial law, where he, which is something that's been talked about for quite a while, where someone under an indictment, uh, a serious indictment, uh, and <clears throat> for a crime of what's called in Israel moral turpitude, uh, would not be able to form a government. Uh, and that is would be specifically aimed at Netanyahu, because that Netanyahu, as we know, is under... Uh, uh, you know, it's under trial, it's under indictment, for at least three cases, and uh, that would mean that Prime, if that was passed, the Prime Minister wouldn't be able to, uh, a Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Netanyahu would not be able to form the next government. Uh, what's interesting is, is this is something the Ayala Shaked has always said that she would be against, and we've heard again that she would be against such a thing. We did hear Nir Orbach, another Yamina minister, also uh, say that he would be against it. Uh, Ram, the Islamist party has sort of straddled the fence a little bit. They're not, they're certainly not um, in favor of it at this point, but they haven't officially taken a position. So Yamina and Ram are the two parties who would be against it. All the other parties in the coalition, whether it's Israel Beitenu, Blue and White, Yeshatid, Merits or Labour, uh, so far their position is, uh, and, and obviously Gidon Sal's own party would be for it. Uh, but Yamina and Ram at this point haven't uh, finalized their position. Also, it's probably not going to come up until after the budget. Uh, but what is interesting is um, while someone like Yael Shaked may vote against, or there may be a, certain, a few certain individuals, uh, the Arab list, which is in the opposition, has said that you can rely on our votes. And I, I think there's six uh, uh, votes there. So in theory, at least, even if a couple of members of the government uh, decided not to vote for it, they would have the soft cushion of uh, the Arab joint list uh, mm -hmm. in the opposition that would vote for this. And in theory, at least, that would ensure that uh, Netanyahu could not uh, form the next government. So that's obviously creating uh, quite a wedge. On the other side, again, uh, where the joint Arab list, they very much enjoy this position where they can play sort of uh, both sides. Today, the for the first time, uh, the, uh, the opposition put up a, a law and it was voted through. Um, it was actually uh, pushed up by the joint Arab list. It was something about look at creating an investigation committee, looking into Arab uh, teachers, how many there were, whether there needs to be more, et cetera, et cetera. This was, a, this was a, one of many, many uh, attempts by the opposition to try and embarrass certain members of the coalition. This time it was to try and embarrass Ram. Obviously Ram and the joint list, both Arab parties are trying to embarrass each other. Uh, but interestingly on this particular vote, uh, opposition leader Benjamin Netanyahu decided that he was going to stand with the Arab joint list, the same joint list that has already given its uh, verbal commitment to vote to ensure that he would not be able to come next prime minister. He decided he would back uh, this joint list uh, law to embarrass the government. And we saw these interesting scenes of Ahmed Tibi, Ayman Uda, uh, the sort of enemies of much of the uh, opposition, the right-wing opposition, slapping hands and congratulating each other where, whereby they passed this law, at least at the first stage, uh, and they were jeering uh, and cheering. It's, it's become a little bit almost infantile in the Knesset at the moment. 
So that was uh, certainly you know, an example of how the jointness can be used by both sides uh, to get what they want. They're in a good position because when we look at the opposition and, and we understand that the coalition has 61 seats, the opposition is 59, but six of those seats is the Arab jointness. So really uh, Netanyahu really only has control of about uh, 53 of those seats. So the jointness is certainly able to uh, embarrass its opposition uh, in the Arab street. And at the same time also you know, uh, ensure that it can vote with the coalition on something which it may feel will hurt the more right-wing members of the opposition. So it's, it's playing its cards uh, very uh, cleverly uh, at this point. In the Likud, certainly after the um, after last week's bombshell of Yuli Edelstein, uh, basically saying he should replace Netanyahu, we saw a lot of disagreements. There was recordings uh, of a Likud faction meeting and people were screaming at each other that they weren't doing their job, that uh, even Netanyahu was forced to apologize for not attending a vote that they would have had the numbers if they would have attended to shoot down a coalition proposal. Uh, but there's real, real disagreements in Likud at the moment. There's real forces within that all going in different directions. There seems to be no one really uh, sort of putting it together at this point. There seems to be a lot of disunity. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, interestingly, just as a sort of final note before we move to questions, uh, one of the big points that Netanyahu tried to make in the last elections and even uh, towards the formation of the government and even after the formation of the government is it was his personal relationships with many countries around the world, um, which allowed Israel's you know, uh, uh, bilateral relations and international standing to thrive. Um, but what we see this week is really something uh, very interesting uh, we see, first of all, that uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett will meet with Vladimir Putin, someone that uh, Netanyahu claimed to have an exceptionally uh, friendly and personal relationship with. But it's the first time Naftali Bennett will go and meet with Putin personally. He'll meet him in the, the city of Sochi. Uh, we also saw the Indian uh, Foreign Minister. We remember the sort of the loving, as they called it at the time, between uh, Prime Minister Modi of India and Prime Minister then Prime Minister Netanyahu. And it, again, that was something that was very much played off as, you know, the, the, this was based on personal relationships. Well, we had uh, the Foreign Minister of India uh, who came into Israel a very good trip and he extended um, an invitation for Prime Minister Bennett to travel to India to meet with his counterpart there. And also um, we saw more invitations for uh, Prime Minister Bennett to visit the Gulf uh, to visit some of these nations, which Netanyahu, without a doubt, was very crucial in uh, creating these relationships, creating this normalization process and the Abraham Accords. And now Bennett uh, is being invited to these places. So it's clear that around the world, there is this understanding that Netanyahu, while it could possibly be that he'll come again, and there was an interesting snippet of information where Netanyahu apparently uh, told um, uh, Vladimir Putin, don't worry, I'll be back after he sent him his, you know, sort of thanks for the relationship over the last, whatever, 13 years. Um, but it's clear that the world is moving on, uh, that the relationship is more than just one person. It is a relationship with Israel. And whoever is the democratically elected leader of Israel as Prime Minister, uh, Naftali Bennett is at this point, uh, the relationships will uh, carry on regardless. So that's quite interesting because we haven't seen, uh, apart from with the, the Biden administration. Obviously, there's historic factors there with the relationship between Obama and Netanyahu. But now we're seeing a lot of those countries which, you know, Netanyahu certainly claimed to have 
uh, emboldened relationships at the personal level. Now we're seeing a lot of the move on and accept the reality, accept the Netanyahu at this point at least. And if a budget is passed for the foreseeable future, is no longer prime minister, he's the opposition leader, and uh, there's a new uh, prime minister in town, and that's Naftali Bennett, and for the relationships to continue flourishing, uh, this is the uh, current address. So um, that, that's of sort of uh, interest, and we'll see how these uh, meetings go. We'll see what the uh, body language is. You know, a lot of people like to, to look at these things to see how the relationships are and what sort of events they'll have. You know, as I said, when Modi came to Israel, there was this, you know, famous moment where they went into the sea and then they rolled up their socks together and they're having a sort of what, what could be known as bromance or, or, or whatever. So it'd be very interesting to see what, what kind of uh, extra uh, uh, events will be surrounding the, these type of trips. Uh, but those are, well, we'll be able to talk about those in the coming weeks. Um, and I'm happy to talk about uh, any issue I've raised uh, tonight or anything else that's on your mind. All right, thank you so much. I'm sure we're all looking forward to see how those meetings go. Uh, from Len Getz, Biden wants to open a separate consulate in Jerusalem for the Palestinian Arabs, even though Prime Minister Bennett and most of the right opposes this. Can Biden do this without Israel's permission? It's, it's a good question. Uh, usually in diplomacy, you don't open an embassy or consulate, a diplomatic mission, without the permission of the country. Um, America, it's interesting because America did have a consulate that did deal with uh, the Palestinians and it was shut under the Trump administration and the embassy was moved. Uh, the embassy will not be moved back to Tel Aviv. The big question is whether consulate will open, reopen perhaps. Um, in theory, the Americans could one day decide this is now, you know, this building is now a consulate, but don't forget there's a lot of things which your host country needs to provide, everything from visas, um, security, coordination, diplomatic um, uh, number plates on, on, on vehicles. Uh, so there needs to be a lot of coordination. So it would be very, very difficult for the Americans and relatively unprecedented for them to push ahead and do it. But obviously the Americans could strong arm the Israelis uh, or offer them some incentives, uh, you know, the sort of carrot and stick approach. It does seem that the Biden administration is very gung-ho on this, would like to move ahead. Um, it's seen in Israel as a symbolic reversal of the Americans' recognition that uh, Jerusalem is the capital and undivided, uh, is it, the undivided capital of the Jewish state. Um, so if they push for that, then, you know, there are a lot of Israelis who are questioning, you know, where this, where this goes from here. You know, there have been those who have said, if this was really, you know, to service uh, Palestinians or Jerusalem Arabs or whatever it is, you could easily put it in Abu Dis, where uh, some other nations hold consulates, which is just over the border, uh, the Jerusalem uh, municipal borders. Perhaps you could put it in Ramallah. Ramallah is the seat of the Palestinian Authority. It's where Abu Mazen sits. It's where the presidential palace is. It's where uh, the parliament is. Um, so if this was really about uh, Palestinians rather than uh, Israel, then perhaps there's other alternatives. And there's a worry in Israel that this is maybe the first step um, towards maybe not a reversal of American recognition of, uh, of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, but maybe a way of tempering it somehow. Um, and this is why that uh, you find pretty much from the mainstream left all the way over to the right, uh, really uh, opposition to it. So 
it remains to be seen. It is going to be pushed off at least until after the the, uh, the budget, um, but it remains to be seen what kind of pressure will be put on after that. Thank you. And a follow up from Stephen Orlo. Uh, so, where does Biden stand? The Biden administration stand on the second major demand: uh, the freeze of the settlement buildings. Well, there hasn't been an open and public freeze, and I don't think there'll be a complete freeze. Uh, certainly, they're interested, and messages have been sent um, through the many meetings that have been taking place, and their coordinator in the region um, that they would like to see a lowering of the amount of settlements being built. Um, it's obviously within the Israeli coalition; it's a it's a sore subject because you have the you know some of the more left wing. Uh, elements, uh, Labour, Merits, even Ram would certainly like to see no building. And then you have the right-wing uh, elements in Yamina, uh, New Hope, and uh, Yisrael Beteno that would like to see building. And then you have the two more centrist parties in the middle. Uh, so it's not just about what the Americans want, it's also about what's good for the coalition. There is building. Um, I don't know the exact numbers compared with uh, what was going on before. Uh, it's clear that uh, um, that the Americans would like to push, not for a freeze, they understand that they can't be a freeze, uh, but certainly a lowering on the number of uh, units which are built in uh, Israeli communities over the Green Line. And one more question on uh, how Israel's responding to the US. Uh, how will they respond regarding limiting the rather extensive influence of China and Israel infrastructure and potential 5G coverage? Well, that, that's something that, uh, first of all, we brought up quite a few, it's been brought up quite a few times in, uh, in these weekly webinars. Uh, and it is something that the Americans brought up with the Israelis at all levels. Uh, it's not just, obviously, um, uh, an, an Israeli issue. It's something the Americans are speaking, you know, with allies around the world. Uh, China, China's certainly been pushing over the last few years with its Belt and Road Initiative to try and help build infrastructure in many, many places, whether it's in Europe, Asia, Africa, uh, you'll find very, very few places you know, in Africa which doesn't have some sort of investment, uh, some even say debt uh, incurred by the Chinese. Um, so it's, you know, there, there has been interest, especially in the port of Haifa, we've talked about that in the past, and 5G, um, but at the moment, the Americans have been able to push back against the Chinese in Israel, because quite simply, when it comes down in Israel to a decision between the Chinese and the Americans, the Israelis will always choose uh, the Americans. So at the moment, there's been pushback, and it's something the American interlocutors do bring up a lot with their Israeli partners and colleagues. Um, but as I said, for Israel on the whole, it tries to have a good relationship with China as much as possible, uh, but it understands if there are demands from the Americans, then it certainly looks uh, quite favorably towards those. Thank you. From Merda Kansari, can you expand on the 1.5 billion contingency that has been designated for Iran in the upcoming budget? What does this mean? Is it to increase pressure on parties involved in the JCPOA talks, or is it something more? I think it's something, I think it's something more. Uh, obviously, I, I'm not privy to any military plans uh, on Iran. Um, but uh, there is the feeling that it is, it, it, it is to deal with concrete plans. Um, you know, we are at a point where, a crucial point in Iran's nuclear, uh, nuclear arms development, um, and Israel, you know, would be foolhardy uh, not to have some sort of a plan 
uh, not to create the infrastructure of some sort of a plan if it gets to the point where it has the ability to strike Israel uh, with nuclear weapons. Um, so there is a worry in the military establishment and that's certainly something that uh, Defence Minister Gantz, that's the reason why he, he asked for the increase. Um, but like any ministry or any establishment, any institution in any uh, government around the world, they're always looking to increase the budgets and you know sometimes they use any sort of tools available. Um, but the Iran, the Iranian threat is something taken very, very seriously. And uh, as I said, you know, every month we get closer and closer to the potential of an, an Iranian uh, nuclear weapons uh, capability. Um, so it, it makes sense that they would need a, a greater budget to deal with this. Uh, but obviously, I can't give too much more than that at this point. Thank you. From Leonard Sands. Uh, going forward, what real influence, if any, do you see Putin and Russia having in the Middle East and on Israel? Tremendous uh, in the Middle East. I mean, we heard today, um, Ewa who is an Arab affairs expert, talked about the fact that the Russians had disbanded uh, militias that they created in Syria that were sort of a buffer between Israel on the Golan and the Syrian uh, Golan, the Syrian side of the Golan. Uh, to make sure that uh, Assad or Hezbollah or some of the other more problematic uh, uh, groups uh, in Syria are not, you know, uh, you know, just a few yards from each other. Uh, but these, you know, they were funded by uh, Russia. This is again, I'm just, uh, you know, sort of uh, going over what uh, Yari mentioned. Uh, but the fact that they've now uh, disbanded them or at least uh, uh, stopped its funding, stopped its support, means that. Uh, Assad and Hezbollah and their allies, including obviously Iran, are going to be that much closer to Israel on the uh, Golan and the Syrian border. That's something which will certainly worry Israel. And, you know, reports of uh, many strikes in, in Syria over the last few days means that, you know, Israel still has the capability to attack when it feels that there's, uh, you know, problematic uh, maneuvers in, in Syria, perhaps uh, weapons going across the Hezbollah or vice versa. Um, Russia and Israel have relatively good coordination on that. Uh, they need to have good coordination on that. That's one of the things that we brought up in uh, Sochi. Uh, but also don't forget uh, Iranian, high-level Iranian officials were in Russia this week. And the relationship there is certainly improving. So Iran, uh, Russia, sorry, rather, is, is a major player in the Middle East. Um, but, you know, Israel has a good relationship with Russia. Uh, but again, you know, Russian interests will always prevail. Um, and it remains to be seen how Prime Minister ben, uh, Bennett will, you know, delicately manoeuvre these uh, these negotiations because at the end of the day, Russia will do what's it's in, in its interest. And it's not to say it's playing both sides, but it has good relations with Iran, has good relations with Syria, has good relations with most of the major players in the region. So Iran, uh, Russia is a very, very important player. So it's important that Bennett strikes that rapport, has that understanding. Uh, and comes away with, you know, at least some commitments. Uh, what's interestingly, just to sort of show Russian influence, this week there's all this debate over who, which vaccines are going to be recognised when Israel opens its doors, hopefully, uh, to tourists. And interestingly, the Russian Sputnik vaccine uh, is going to be put on one of those, uh, going to be put on the list of one of those that uh, uh, you're allowed to have if you want to enter into Israel. Obviously, the Sputnik vaccine is not FDA approved, uh, nor by the European agency. 
so the fact that uh, it's going to be on the list of approved vaccines for travelers and tourists to come into Israel obviously shows that uh, Russia uh, has a great interest there and it certainly put a certain amount of pressure on the Israeli government to include that. So just a sort of side note, but it shows uh, on something like that, that the Russians have great influence and there's a lot of negotiations back and forth. And this is something that Israel obviously has, has had to accept. Thank you. So from an anonymous attendee with Sweden, Germany, Russia, India, etc., talking with Israel, might this mean we are finally making inroads and in winning the battle? Battle. Depends what battle. <laughs> <laughs> as far as as far as bilateral relations, you know, Israel, Israel's imports and export goes up every year, diplomatic relations improve, we're, we're speaking to more and more nations, we're joining more and more international organizations. So in that respect, yes, we're winning the battle. If the battle is for headlines, BDS, things like that, then probably not. But where it matters, it uh, hasn't really had a tremendous uh, diplomatic or economic effect uh, on Israel. And as I've said, every year our standing around the world, you know, we're, we're a member of the elite, uh, you know, organizational world, global institutions like the OECD uh, and others. So uh, there's nothing new in that. Sweden, you know, if I want to pick out Sweden, we haven't had a high level meeting in about 10 years, but that was more because it was felt that Sweden was certainly, uh, you know, treating Israel unfairly. So there is a bit of a reset in relations um, that, that's taking place uh, in these days. But all the other meetings, there's, there's nothing particularly new in them. And as far as winning the, bat the battle, you know, our, our relationships are, are pretty good. But at the end of the day, you know, every nation, as I talked about Russia, and I don't want to just single out Russia, every nation looks at its interests. And, Sometimes it may be domestic pressure, sometimes it may be diplomatic pressure, sometimes it may be just to get on a certain United Nations panel, you have to take a, a more critical start, uh, uh, you know, critical stance towards Israel. So it's, it's really about the, the direct relationship with Israel. When it comes to bilateral relations, Israel's bilateral relations with most countries in the world is, is pretty good and improving every year. Well, that was a good note to end on. <laughs> so we've come to the close of our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update us this week. For our viewers, please join us Friday for a webinar on the plight of Palestinian Christians. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a great day.